This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with hey everyone, real stories to Working about Drummer Podcast. This week music. we've got Zach Albetta's interview with Nashville drummer Eric Slick. Eric is a product of the Philly area where he began touring with Dr. Dog. After relocating to Nashville in 2018, he continued that gig until the band's recent hiatus and has gone on to perform with Waxahachie and the Crooked Rhythm Band, among others. He is also a singer, songwriter, and producer in his own right. His latest release as a solo artist is an album of 10 original songs called Wiseacre. He only started recording and producing his own playing and his own songs a few years ago, but it has escalated quickly with really cool results. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our latest Patreon content will feature today's guest, Eric Slick, talking about the production process for this song. Also great stuff on there from Ash Zone, Don Perry, Joe Bergamini, Stephen Chopek, Nate Felty, and Chuck Palmer, talking about specific songs they've tracked for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support again. That's patreon.com slash working drummer. So here we go. Let's get to Zach's conversation with Eric Slick. We had to like do a little reschedule for this because it sounds like you are in the weeds of uh, like setting up a new studio. Um, yes. So talk about that a little bit. Is this is this like a brand new space? Is it a revamp of an old space? No, uh, I moved into a new house two years ago, and the house came with a studio because I live in Nashville. So, <laughs> because um, Nashville, of course. <laughs> because of because it's Nashville, and houses just come with studios here. So uh, yeah. Um, you know, over the course of the last two years, I've sort of been refining the space and um, doing remote drum recordings back there. But now it's like 
the whole studio. Uh, there's there's a control room, a live room, and a vocal booth, and now they're all connected. Wow, um, they weren't connected before. So yeah, yeah, it's gonna be like could like make a record back there, which is really exciting. Yeah, I mean, you could you could make uh, just a whole record start to finish, not just the drum tracking. Yeah. Um, exactly. And is that is that something that you have been doing? Is it something you want to do more of? It's it's it seems like drumming is just one piece of what you're up to over there. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Uh I mean, I would love to make a record back here or um, you know, potentially do demos for people. I mean, yeah, now the the sky's the limit, so I'm really excited to get working. Right. And aside from um you know the the technical aspect of all that um what about the um you know producer or engineer uh role that you can play sort of excites you like do you have specific goals there or is it just kind of a path you want to go down and see what happens yeah i mean there's no specific goal it's more just to get continue to get better i think i've always been kind of a slow burn kind of slow path type of person so um Going back there and, uh, you know, learning how everything functions uh, little by little is the way I like to do things. And I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to experiment. Um, and that's sort, of, that, that's the, that's sort of the inherent goal that's baked into it is to just get better at recording. It's so funny. Like, I've been doing sessions for so long. And, like, I never asked what why we were using certain microphones. And I'm like, I'm kicking myself a little bit like, <laughs> oh, man, <laughs> if I'd only asked why we were doing that stuff. Right. Um, now, now I'm watching YouTubes of people, you know, telling me to like and subscribe, um, you know, yeah. don't, about, you know, don't forget to smash that I, button. Don't forget to smash the button. And uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, you know, watching six hour tutorials about compression. So, you know, Oof. just fun stuff, fun stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I relate to that, that slow burn uh, mentality, because I think especially when you're starting out and like just starting to get some sounds, um, it, it can seem overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. Um, mm-hmm. Just the amount of info there is the amount of techniques there are to utilize like just with drums alone never mind the rest of the music (laughs) um totally totally but one benefit of starting with the drums is that like if you get a good drum sound you're going to be so much further along in the recording i feel like when people come to me they're like how do you get drums to sound good and now i've been sort of over the last couple years been learning how to do that and how to get like proper gain and proper what mics to use and proper muffling all this stuff like i'm saying proper as as if like there's one way to do things but you know what i mean yeah like, just getting it getting, dialed getting, into to where it fits and where it suits the music yeah getting usable right like, the things that things that could be used on a major release like that's that's an amazing thing to learn and once you get that core element you know then i think the rest of the stuff, the stuff might come a little bit easier. That that might be one advantage of starting with uh, learning how to do drum recordings. Because usually that's the thing that people agonize the most over. Right, and I think it's, um, <laughs> I, I think drums uh, set one of the highest bars um, as far as mastering the basics, like you were saying, like gain staging, figuring out phase, um, you mm-hmm. know, getting the basics of room tuning and drum tuning and. Um, you know, cause it like, if you can, if you can, uh, learn that stuff through the drums, if you can do well with it, recording drums, I think, um, you have just a huge, um, uh, 
base of knowledge to do everything else with. It seems like everything else would be easier, like plugging an amp in and putting a mic on it. And like, that's, that's child's play compared to <laughs> micing up a whole drum set. I, totally. Yeah. And I'm learning something new every single day. I mean, I've been playing drums my whole life and I'm like, yeah, learning about phase and learning about, you know, kick, kick mic in, kick out, you know, just yeah. all the stuff that's like, that's new. That's, <laughs> That that like shouldn't be new to me at age thirty five, but it, it is, and I think that's a that's a cool thing, you know. You you're never, it's never too late. Yeah, I mean, I I got started even later than you did. Like I'm I'm forty one, and um, it you know it it wasn't really until COVID until lockdown that I had kind of the opportunity to to dig into this stuff. Before that, I knew the difference between a dynamic mic and a condenser mic, kinda. But uh-huh. but that kinda, was that yeah. was about it. <laughs> Um, oh, same. No, I mean, and the, I, I would agree with you. Like, I started getting some ideas about recording in 2019, but it wasn't until the lockdown where I was like, if I want to, you know, stay afloat during this, not having any touring, um, I'm going to learn about what to do and kind of little by little get the gear that I need to get. Right. Um, but yeah, but yeah, still still a novice by so many uh, so many standards, especially in Nashville. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, yeah. it, man. I, I think that's a good thing to to keep in perspective. Like, um, no matter what city you're in, like I'm in Atlanta, and and Nashville is obviously um, a, a bigger pond as far as drumming and especially session work goes. Um, but just because. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a parallel in, in playing too. Like just because there are people very close to you doing like really amazing shit, um, that you may never be able to achieve (laughs) financially or technically or, or whatever, doesn't mean that you can't come up with quality stuff that, that like, you know, you have something to offer as well. Absolutely. And also living here, I mean, I, I, there's so many resources. So it's like, sure. Uh, when there was one day I was really struggling with drum sounds and getting, uh, you know, certain preamps to work. And I just call a producer friend and I'm like, how do you work this <laughs> channel? How do you work a channel strip? And he's like, all right, here we go. Like, <laughs> you know, do this, do that. And it's just, it's, it's amazing how helpful everyone's been here. Uh, and, people aren't aren't so competitive or protective over what they do they recognize that like even the slightest individuality you know the, the slightest part of your personality is going to make it different right you know what I mean? yeah so yeah i think we i think we forget about that sometimes like the intrinsic uniqueness of just you know, someone, someone other than you doing something, maybe what might even appear to be the same way, but it's still going to be different. Right. right. Um, I heard a, I heard a really good story about um, Matt Chamberlain and Jim Keltner. Like Matt Chamberlain was playing his kit in a studio and Keltner walked in and Keltner was like, Oh man, do you mind if I sit down at your kit? That's a beautiful looking kit. And like, Matt was like, yeah, absolutely. And he got up and Keltner sat down and he said the whole kit like dropped by an octave. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I think, and I think that that's um, a beautiful thing, you know, like there are two, there are two drummers who are known for session work, but like they provide two totally different approaches, even though they may, they might like some of the same things and might have a similar way of approaching things. They're, 
they're different. Yeah. They're just different. Yeah. So, and that, you know, that difference between players and personalities is, um, you know, it's, it's very apparent to most of us when it, when it comes to hearing someone play. Um, but kind of a more esoteric, maybe, uh, idea that I've been sort of turning over in my head is that, like, that same idea in the studio and particularly in your studio, right? Like, mm-hmm. can you, can you kind of overlap? the kind of player you are, the kind of, you know, music that you are good at, your personality behind the drums, can you, um, you know, overlap what your studio is good at with that? Mm-hmm. Can those two, I mean, obviously you want those two things to go together, but like, is that is that something you're thinking about or sort of uh, going for? Yeah, although, you know, I think this is sort of what I'm getting at is that, like, uh, you, the, your inherent uniqueness as a person is going to bleed through whatever you do anyway. Sure. So, like, uh-huh. so, so, so it's like you almost can't help it. Right. Um, there are t- there's times when I'm writing a song and I'm trying so hard to do something that's not me or something that's, you know, what I normally do. And then invariably it always ends up having some uh you know some quality that is like a signature quality because it's me doing it and i think that goes for anybody like that's the beauty of the beauty of it it's like the way you arrange a room the way you like stack up stack a bunch of plates all those things boil down to like not i wouldn't even call it the subconscious it's like unconscious you're kind of unconsciously do the thing that you're attracted to, right? Like right. you can you can try to fight it as much as you want, but it's still going to be there. So, like, yeah, the studio that's in the back, like uh, my wife has, like, she's been super helpful with all the design stuff. But like, it does feel like this um, combination of our personalities back there. Yeah, and it's just it's just you know you like what you like, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is she a musician too? Yeah. What yeah. Is, what does she do? Phenomenal. She's a songwriter. Oh wow! What is her name? Uh, yeah, her name's Natalie Press. Were Were you playing with her recently? Did you guys like? Because I, I, I saw I, your I IG been, and um, th- there was somebody you I, were out I, with who was not Doctor Dog and. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that it uh, has been Waxahachie. So oh, that's okay. um, an artist artist named Katie Crutchfield. But I've I've toured with Natalie a bunch over the years, and um, we still play shows together every once in a while. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, Waxahachie is who I've been out with since uh, February of cool. this year. Cool. Yeah. And is the yeah. Dr. Dog thing still going? No. Oh, okay. No, we did a farewell tour uh, from September to December. The band's not ending, but like we're just ceasing touring operations. Right. Um, which, which was like the plan for, it was actually the plan bef- even before the pandemic. Um, the guys were just ready to take either, you know, an indefinite hiatus or be home. Right. Um, which, which I think, which I think is a cool thing to, to be able to say like, yeah, you know, we owe it to ourselves. We've been touring so hard for so many years. Um, it's not, nothing acrimonious, nothing, nothing like, uh, you know, personalities don't mesh. Everything about the band is as good as it could ever be, but it's, you understand, you know how it is. I mean, yeah. touring is hard. Touring is hard even when you get to a level that's comfortable. Right, right. And being away from home is hard. 
Um, yeah. And man, what a what a mature decision on the part of Dr. Dog <laughs> to just. Yeah. Be, like, we're, yeah. We're sick of this and we're just going to stop it for a while and see what yeah. happens. <laughs> I wouldn't even say that it's like a sick of it thing. It's more just like, you know, there's certain responsibilities that you can't can't do or, you know, you can't um, engage in when you're gone, you know, especially if you have kids or yeah, if they're yeah. in school and, and um it could be that I think that can be really brutal for people. Um, now I think everybody did their best at dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And I think we all try to do our best of like staying sane while we're out there. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah, sometimes it's just the right move to call it. Yeah. yeah. And the, and the last tour we did was so fun. I mean, it was kind of crazy because it was like right when um, Delta and Omicron were like raging, but mm. we made it ha- we made it happen. <laughs> Everybody came out okay. Uh, you know, I didn't get covid until the last show that we played. Oh man. <laughs> so so uh, we went out on top. I yeah, got covid. Right. <laughs> uh, I got covid New, New Year's Day. Uh, uh, Jesus. Year. Actually, I think yeah. I I got it right around then too. I was I was flying back to Atlanta from like both my wife and I are from New Mexico. Um so we go oh, nice. we go back to Santa Fe for for Christmas every year and and I I'm pretty sure it was on the trip back like right around New Year's same as you that I that I got it. Um mm, I was just in Santa Fe and I uh I ate a lot of food. Good. That's one of the things you should definitely do there. What'd you what'd you eat? Where where'd you eat? Well, I went I, I think I went to the pantry. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I went to the I had to go to the pantry. I I had a burrito at the pantry that was more food than I'd eat probably eaten on the entire tour. <laughs> uh the the Christmas chili thing is amazing. And then yeah. we, there's a there's a spot that I used to go to um it's called like the shack or uh the shed. hold on what's the shed. Yep. Yeah. So I used to go to the shed all the time. And I remember the first time I went was in 2006 and there was a sign on the door that said, if you're not local, you may want to turn around. <laughs> it's- and my sister and I used to tour together and we, we, we were ready. We were like, let's go, let's go in. You know, how, how spicy can it be? Yeah. And then it was yeah very, we were like, we were crying. I mean, we were laughing too, but we were crying of how, how spicy it was. You got your head blown off. Uh, but I, I've gotten acclimated to it. And then there's that uh, the sister restaurant to the shed that I'm uh, forgetting the name of. It. La Choza. La Choza. Yes, yeah. I went to La Choza. Badass. Um, I'm so proud of you. I'm I'm just, I'm beaming right now because if you... Really? Like, I mean, you found these places on your own. Like if you were in Santa Fe and you texted me, I would be like, go to the shed. Do not pass go. Uh, Do not pass... Yeah. <laughs> You got to go to the shed. And the thing that's crazy about that is we found that spot. I mean, this is like pre-Yelp. This is pre-iPhone. So, like, I remember viscerally going to the shed and having that scorching meal. Um, and, and, and then the next morning um, going to the pantry and really just being like, this is this is my favorite kind of food. Yeah. I, mean, I, I could eat I could eat the Christmas chili, the red and green chili. Like I could eat that every day of my life, dude. It's it's yeah. my blood type. It's I just I love it. <laughs> and and New Mexico chili, it's it's not like it's not like Thai food or um you know wasabi or like some kind of like spiciness that's like immediate. Like you know you go to the shed, yeah. you get your Christmas enchiladas, and you have a bite, and you're like, yeah, this is this is pretty hot. This is delicious, and this is pretty hot. And then yeah. halfway through the plate, you're like, fuck my life. This is it builds. <laughs> yes, yes, it's very different than like a yeah Szechuan heat or yeah. Thai food heat. Um, 
But yeah, I I think after we got through New Mexico and we got to California, I was like, I think I'm good on burritos for a minute. <laughs> like, I, I think I've had my quota. I feel I feel good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't get enough every time we're back there. Like my wife looks forward to it as well. Um, but just like every single meal, I'm like, let's, let's put some green chili on it. Let's do enchiladas. Let's, and you know, after, after two days, she's like, I've had enough. I'm going to take a break. I'm like, you take a break. I'm, I'm still, I'm still going in. How long did you do the Dr. Dog gig? Since 2010. That's a long time. Wow. It's a long time. So that's like almost I, almost the full life of the band, but not quite, right? Uh, Well, no. I mean, they had been around for 10 years prior to that. Oh, so shit. They've, okay. been around a, they've been around a really long time. And I, I was friends with them in Philadelphia where I grew up. Um, I watched them play many shows to like 20 people you know mm-hmm. but i just really always believed in what they were doing um and then their uh, last drummer had quit and uh, that door had opened but at that point i was like not really um confident that i was going to get any kind of long-term job in music mm-hmm. uh i had been i had been doing like the van touring for five years at that point um and then just by chance, you know, I ran into the keyboardist of Dr. Dog and he told me that the, the other drummer had quit. And then he gave me a call uh, like a week later and was like, hey, do you want to audition? Wow. And, then it, and, and then I was the only one who auditioned. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought there were going to be all these hot shots waiting outside the studio with like uh, looking like Jeff Percaro with like a bunch of staff paper or something. Right, um, right. Like, it, like kind of whiplash in my mind, um, but it totally, <laughs> totally wasn't that way. I think my, my jazz school uh, damage had probably prepared me that, like, <laughs> it was going to be a lot of people. But my jazz school uh, damage. I love that. It, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we, yeah. Jazz damage is a common phrase uh, around here for sure. Oh, man. Uh, I, I have it. I have it as well. You and I need to maybe start a support group or something. I think so. I think there are, yeah, I think there might already be one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when you when you kind of connected with that um, keyboardist, was that still in Philly or were you in Nashville by that point? I was still in Philly. I didn't move to Nashville until 2018. Oh, um, wow. Okay. I, I, I lived in Philly for a really long time and was happy to stay there. But um, eventually my, my career path just kind of brought me here. And um, it's been really good. It's been really different. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think I was weirdly burning the candle at both ends more so in Philadelphia because I would go on tour and I'd come home and I'd play in like, I'd play in like 10 bands locally. Yeah. And so it's constantly gigging. Whereas here, not really gigging as much, but like I'm doing, I'm doing more of the things that I've always wanted to do, like playing on session, playing sessions, um, you know, writing, uh, Play, playing really fun local gigs uh it's it's been awesome here yeah, yeah that it sounds like uh quality over quantity which um those th- those yes. those who have been listening to the podcast uh since um 
you know, we're kind of starting to emerge from the pandemic are, are sick of hearing me talk about this because it kind of comes up in every interview I'm doing where people are emerging from the pandemic with a different set of priorities and, um, yeah. you know, a, a, a sense of greater purpose and not just being on the, the gig hamster wheel, um, but attaching more meaning and more value, whether that's um, creative or personal or financial to to mm-hmm. every gig you do and perhaps that's boundaries too yeah because we all had you know because we all had time to slow down and really think about what it is that we're looking for out of this and i think for me um my addiction to workahol uh was, was pretty strong yeah and, and it's still and it's still strong but um i think to be a little bit more um to be choosier about what you do and also to kind of learn how to say no when maybe uh, a situation doesn't serve you uh, in the best possible way, yeah. I think is is really a powerful thing. The power of no. Dude, dude, <laughs> uh, uh, keep talking. But I think, <laughs> but I think, but I think uh, drummers are sort of uh, ingrained with this, uh, you know, if you start saying no to things, the opportunities will dry up. And I I'm going to counter to that, and I would actually argue that the more you say no to things, the more valuable uh, you become. I used to say yes to everything, um, and I think, you know, you it's like a you can weigh out the pros and cons of that and be like, am I is taking this job going to benefit the music? Is it going to benefit me? Am I going to learn something from it? And if and I think if like it doesn't check all those boxes, then I think it's okay to be like I'm going to pass. That might. And the thing is, it's no sh- no shade on whatever that artist is bringing to you, but I think like it might be more suitable for somebody else, and that might be a learning experience for somebody else. Yeah. I think about all the times I was I was handed gigs when I was a kid that were way out of my league, and what and what I learned from them, you know. Um, so yeah. Um, yeah yeah man it's it's huge yeah um and you know like like you said i think uh there's there's a a fear in saying no because um like you mentioned uh you get it in your head that you know the the opportunities are going to dry up if you say no too much then nobody's ever going to ask you to do anything ever again um but i think the other reason we're so afraid to say no is is that we're just programmed to fill the schedule we're programmed Mm -hmm. to just fill the calendar and be busy um Mm -hmm. and uh you know i I think some of us fall into a trap i'm certainly guilty of this like you fall into a trap of of believing that being busy is the goal right like if your calendar is Mm -hmm. full there's part of you that's like i did it i won i'm busy and and you don't put much thought into what it is full of, right? Like if you're in demand and you're just working every night, that's a victory. Um, and, uh, you know, some, some people do need to fill the schedule just to make that money. And, and I respect that. Um, but, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you're not taking stock of like, what am I actually spending my time doing? Do I give a shit about this music? Do I give a shit about these people or am I just Mm -hmm. filling the schedule because that's what I am used to doing? Yeah, I think that's huge. And I think also uh, a lot of the successful artists that I've worked with, people who aren't drummers, Mm -hmm. 
they say no all the time. <laughs> they say no to things left and right. Like you, they, they're almost addicted to saying no. And I would kind of watch, kind of watch from afar, but I would also watch the opportunities that did come. Uh, you know, get sweeter and sweeter over time. And, and um, not even just from like a financial standpoint, but like from a from a spiritual standpoint too. Like you're actually doing things that you really, really want to do and would be, you know, fulfilling to your spirit. So anyway, yeah, the, we, we kind of got on an interesting thread there. But I do think that like a lot of my friends, especially during the pandemic, uh, sort of, recalibrated and we're like here's what i'm going to do and here's what i'm not going to do and i saw somebody say something recently one of my drummer friends who was like you know going on tour now feels like an interruption of of being at home and my home life yeah whereas before before it used to feel the opposite way Mm -hmm. where it was like you know uh, the the home life was not necessarily the thing to relish it was more about staying busy filling the calendar um but yeah, it's cool because now a lot of the gigs I play here are just really fun and very uh, challenging. And there's there's one group of people I play with called the Crooked Rhythm Band. Oh, Jake, who yes. introduced us. Yeah. Um, like playing with Jake has been such a, an amazing experience. And the, his whole network of musicians, like I keep meeting new people who are just totally incredible. Yeah. So, um, so stop there for a second. That, the the Crooked Rhythm yeah. Band is is the reason you got on my radar. Like Jake invited me to that show. Yeah. I was in town playing at, at Rudy's. Um, oh, nice. And um, yeah, so I went and I went and saw the Crooked Rhythm Band at the Blue Room, which is an incredible mm-hmm. room. Um, but yeah, like I just I saw you playing like all this, you know, Fela, uh, uh, Tony Allen shit, and I was like, man, this is this is beautiful. Like the whole band was beautiful and your playing was awesome. And the room was amazing. And it was just, it was a really cool experience. Um, oh. but I, I'm curious, like how, how much have you gone into that whole bag that Tony Allen like thing was, is that part of your bag or did you kind of have to bone up on it for that gig? Uh, well, I've definitely become more acquainted with it because I was, a fan already like i had i had a couple of failure records and i you know i've sort of like i've studied a lot of that stuff i used to study with billy martin oh uh, wow okay. in, in new jersey so he he taught me a lot of like the sort of six eight twelve eight clave uh african rhythm stuff mm-hmm. and then when um I had kind of like faked my way through learning some Fela stuff. But then when this gig came along, I was like, oh, this is perfect. Like, this is an opportunity to really sit down, slow down the drum beats, and hear what's actually happening. Yeah. And it's so wild. It's so like free flowing and beautiful. And like, it's its own thing. I love um, hearing Jake and Raymond, the trombonists, like talk about it. And they school me on this stuff mm-hmm. where they're like, Okay, so you have to understand that like this drumming is actually recontextualized like James Brown stuff, but also met, you know uh, fused with um, you know master African drumming uh, yeah. that's like been been around for centuries. So when you start seeing it through that lens and playing it, then you can you can see the building blocks of it because I don't want obviously like I don't want to do it halfway I don't yeah. want <laughs> I don't want to um, go up there and like do uh, an impersonation right um, because I think 
also as drummers, a lot of the times we are doing a synthesis of all of our favorite drummers when we play. And then, you know, you go through that period where you're like, all you want to do is sound like Bonham or all you want to do is sound like Tony Williams and you, you ape it and then it gets synthesized through you anyway. Right. Um, so I'm doing the best that I can for that Tony <laughs> Allen stuff. That, that, that stuff is, is so unbelievable. And so I, I think Brian, you know, said that his favorite drummer of all time is Tony Allen. Mm-hmm. Um, because of like the uh, decept the deceptive simplicity of it, yeah, you know, you, you could listen to it and think that it's this looping thing, but it's really not. It's like it's so much more complex than that. Yeah, yeah, and it's it it has like you mentioned the James Brown thing, and and there's definitely some of that in there, but you know, not not unlike Afro Cuban music or Brazilian music or um, or jazz. Like it it has its own swing its own inflection like you know writing down the groove and learning the coordination is like step one and then it has kind of a different hierarchy of accents and taps almost than yes than a james brown thing absolutely yeah it's, it's again you know it when you're playing it in the context of the music it all makes sense mm-hmm. but if you were to if you were to isolate the individual things, you'd be like, that's really strange. <laughs> but um, I, f- I feel really lucky that Raymond is such a scholar on all that stuff, mm-hmm. and, and Jake too. And then um, the percussionist who was playing with us, uh, I, uh, he was also like, hey, man, um, end of three, you got to open that hi-hat. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. He's like, yeah, he's like, if you don't do that, then that's not right. And I was like, <laughs> All right, thank you, thank you so much. So that's it's challenging in a totally different way because, like, I grew up playing progressive rock and fusion, which like can be very linear mm-hmm. um, and very mathematical. And once you get the hang of the mathematics of it, it's like it weirdly doesn't become challenging. Mm-hmm. I know that might sound crazy because like some people are like, oh my god, like Frank Zappa music. Cause I used to play in a Zappa cover band. They're like, oh, it's the most challenging music ever. I'm like. Actually, I would argue that something like Fela or something like Tony Allen's drumming is harder because it's the well is a lot deeper mm-hmm. uh, as far as just like the pocket goes and what you're saying, like sort of the deceptive uh, simplicity of it. Whereas, um, you know, the stuff that I used to play was a little bit more like you could you could kind of count it out. Mm-hmm. You could be like, you know, you could you could figure out how to play a quintuplet over a bar of a thing and. Right. There, there's something that's sort of finite about that. Yeah, and I uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like what you're what you're saying is what you need to know playing a Zappa song can be written on a page. Bingo. And the thing about Tony is that so much of that playing is in the cracks. Yep. You know, it's kind of like it's like trying to transcribe Dilla too. It's like yeah, it's it would be almost impossible, and so. In the same way that like microtonal music fascinates me because mm. it's like it's uh, you're it sort of proves the point that like you know transcribing is is an amazing tool but it's not everything yeah um uh I can I, my cheat sheet for all the Tony Allen beats are like it lo- probably look crazy to you but like <laughs> uh it sort of implies that you're supposed to swing it play it through the cracks and. Um, really listen, yeah, because that that's that's going to be your best friend in that kind of scenario. Right. Uh, whereas the Zappa thing is like you could theoretically nail it 
if you had a click going, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit more exact. got like a, a solo project uh going as well correct yeah i do and yeah how much of that music that i hear is you uh when you mean like if you've heard a song of mine yeah uh well generally speaking i write my own songs uh and i sing my own songs uh-huh. um but every once in a while i'll do a co-write with somebody and then as far as the records go the last record i did um, I, I had a band. Okay, uh, cool. I played, I mean, I did play a lot on that record, mm-hmm. um, but the bass, I had a bass player, a guitarist and a keyboardist. And, um, that was such an awesome thing to, to do. Cause, uh, we tracked that whole thing off of a click, no click. And, wow. um, so yeah, so no click on that entire record. And then I had a vocal mic at the kit. And so I kind of like did my, my, my best, uh, Phil Collins and um, so you, I that that you tracked really... you tracked vocals and drums at the same time. I tracked vocals and drums at the same time to make sure that um, the vocal pocket would really feel good. Wow! And then and, and then I overdubbed on top of that for sure. Like I double tracked and did harmonies, but like uh, all the drum tracks and the vocal tracks were initially done at the same time, so that it I, so that it would feel good. Oh my god, my Herbie. Get out of there. My dog, my dog is like freaking out. Hold on one second. Sure. He was like scratching the door. I'm like, please don't ruin our nice doors. Um, yeah. So track the vocals at the same time. Yeah. Just cause like normally what will happen is I'll come up with a tempo for a song, cut it to a click. And then the thing I'll struggle with is that like, it doesn't ebb and flow. And a lot of my favorite music ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. Um, I like, I like variations in tempo. Like when I hear, I mean, I also love quantized music. Don't get me wrong. Like I think there's some amazing quantized music in the world, but like sort of in line with what we were just talking about, like yeah. having having some slippage, yep. some some um, push and pull, is what excites me about listening to it an album right Um, right and like like, you were talking earlier about something being subconscious or unconscious like did you uh, i I would imagine that you didn't um necessarily like push and pull things and sort of uh instill that slippage on purpose it just no no there's only one track where it was done intentionally Mm -hmm. and i knew that i wanted it to pull i wanted it to push at the end of the song but everything else everything else was about the um, recording process being like as organic as possible. Yeah. Um, but now it's interesting because I'm working on a new record and I'm finding myself like really attracted to old drum machines. So I've been like buying up janky old late seventies, early eighties drum machines and wow. like just, just seeing what happens. And those are quantized, but they'd have like, they're a little messed up. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, which I think is, 
awesome because like uh, that era for me musically, like I love the late seventies and early eighties. I love the way the production is. I love that. Like there's a lot of synthesizers, but like no one quite knows how to use them yet. Right. Like, <laughs> like, like, Mo- like Moog would just give a band a Moog right. and they'd be like, here you go. And then some guy would be like, okay, I think this is what you're supposed to do. <laughs> <laughs> or you, or, or you have innovators like Bernie Worrell with P-Funk, who's like a Juilliard graduate and can like, knows exactly how to work the synthesizer in the most incredible way. So, right. um, so in addition to I, that, like what are, what are some songs or records or artists that, that you point to as that sort of late seventies, early eighties, like that's your jam. I mean, Devo, <laughs> D- Devo, Devo is definitely one that I grew up listening to a lot. And, uh, they, they exist in this really great space of like, being so precise, but also being so janky, mm-hmm. um, and kind of, and kind of messed up. And then, uh, I mean, I love like this band, uh, yellow magic orchestra from Japan. Wow. Um, they're like early. Yeah. They're amazing. They're like early, just early synthesizer band, but like really funky, but doesn't feel robotic ever to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's got such a great pocket. Uh, and then like, I mean, yeah, there's so much, I mean, like, the Stevie Wonder records have yeah. a lot of synthesizers on them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those records are like, sometimes it'll be like wickedly out of tune, but it's just like, it's the exact right thing. Yeah. Um, that's the, that's the kind of stuff I like where but also the drums are usually like pretty dry. Yep. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of reverb on that stuff. And I think like my, my uh, tastes generally revolve around very dry, like, um, unpolished, you know, that kind of unpolished sound, yep. uh, you know, the tea towel sound or like the kick with no front head sound. Right. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm such a sucker for that. <laughs> I also think, I also think that drums used to be mixed louder, like drums and vocals used to be the thing that was the loudest in a mix. And I still think that it's, that's the way it should be. That's interesting. I never really thought about that. Um, but as I'm imagining like a Stevie song or even like some of the late Beatles stuff, like the drums were really up front in all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was better that way. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. I know I'm so, maybe I mean, a little selfish. But, yeah, but this, is a, this is a drum podcast, but I think I think we can be objective and say, yes, that was better. <laughs> listen to yeah listen to like even smells like teen spirit yeah and that is so, think about that song and it's like you think you kind of think about the guitar and bass but you really think about the drum and the vocal mm-hmm. um so that's my goal it, you know especially with making records back there like i want to see if i can pull off a drum forward mix that doesn't completely swallow the vocal but yeah um, anyway yeah that's that's just it's just what I like. Man, I want to hear it. Do it. Go after it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I also there's a there's a station uh, in town called The Ville, which plays like pretty much exclusively sixties through eighties R and B, and the drums are always just like so so up front, like the Gap Band. Yeah, um, you know, like. At the, I mean, Tony Thompson plays drums on a lot of that stuff. And I think Dave Grohl even touched on this recently in some documentary, but like that drumming is so punchy and upfront and dead. And yeah. A lot, yeah, I love that. Well, it goes back to what you said at the beginning about, about sort of, um, uh, 
you know, building a song around a drum sound, right? Like if you build, if you build a drum sound, then you can just like build a song around it. Um, and if you're, if you're, you know, going to so much time and trouble to build that drum sound, like keep it out front. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I agree. Um, and yeah, I'm just a sucker for that kind of drum sound. Like yeah. it's interesting to go back and listen to the things that were on the radio when I was cut when I was growing up, like the early nineties and just like how I, I, I hesitate to say it, but like how boingy the drum sound is. <laughs> yeah. like, um but I think that like every era of drumming has its is going to have its uh you know, characteristics mm-hmm. because th- there's also all that it's like as drum technology has evolved over the years, um, you know, I feel like in the nineties it was like rims mounts and yeah. uh, a custom symbols. So right. like every recording, every recording has like an a custom splash on it, even if it's like a rock album. <laughs> um, but yeah. I think that that's kind of cool. It's kind of cool because it, it dates it in a way where you're like, Oh, I'm listening to this. And it's like, if I hear that really distinctive, a custom splash, then like, I know this is, probably from 1992 or like right right yeah. and i you know i i'm a few years older than you but i'm i'm from the same era and um i feel like man 90s drum sounds are just some of my favorite ever it's kind of the opposite of what you were talking about with like the tea towel yeah. sound and whatever but um it was i i could be full of shit somebody might email me about this but like i feel like that 90s drum era um it, it like recording wasn't quite into digital yet. So like yes. analog analog had gone as far as it could before the digital thing happened. And like you said, drum technology and drum sounds and drum, you know, construction and manufacturing was also kind of reaching a pinnacle. Um, yes. So like those like analog recording and drum, uh, you know, construction sort of peaked together in the nineties and these killer, just roomy sounds came out of the nineties. I mean, like, that's why I feel like I, those drums, it made you feel like you were in the room with the drums. Like you were in a great sounding room with a great sounding kit and it just sort of like surrounded you. Yeah. Sort of the counter to the boingy drum sound that I'm talking about is like, yeah, the Butch Viggs and the Steve Albini's of that era who like, yeah, had had an ear for vintage stuff, but also could uh, recontextualize it and make it modern. And I think you are right. Yeah, like the albums that came right before Pro Tools yeah. uh, do 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 really push the limits of what's possible. Um, it's so interesting to think about now because, like, my my question and the thing I keep asking myself is like. Ooh, what has happened in drum technology since then? Mm-hmm. Cause like the last thing I can really think of is like the beginning of the Instagram era. And then like the fetishization of all things sixties and seventies. Right. So where are we at? Where are we truly at now with all that stuff? Like, are we just kind of stuck in like drums being one kind of way, or is it going to, is someone going to push the envelope with shell construction? Or is there going to be some kind of new synthetic material that lends itself? Like, I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think like drums are kind of in the same place as like guitars are. I mean, like even Fender makes, they still make a Stratocaster. They still make a Telecaster, still make a Jazzmaster and a Jaguar. Yep. These are models that have existed since the late 50s. Still make a P-Bass. Yeah. 
<laughs> they still make a pee base yeah. and um yeah it's 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 a sort of a interesting thing to think about like where where it's going to go from here or you know if we're just going to kind of stick with this and all agree that it, this is what sounds really good right i mean does it have to go somewhere else from here i think do you do you have to reinvent the wheel again you know sometimes that works out and and leads to something super cool that becomes super popular um but I don't know. I'm like <laughs> between the vintage drum thing and, and just like, you know, the nineties sounds I grew up on, like I'm good. I don't need any other sounds. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the thing I will say, um, the, the coolest thing I've seen in the last couple of years is the Sunhouse percussion stuff. Yeah. Man. Sort of that's, that stuff is crazy. And it's I think bonkers. like that, that, that might be, uh, that might be the thing that's pushing the envelope in a really cool way where like it liberates it liberates the drum kit from being like you know an acoustic instrument into this like multi-zone pad i mean people have tried to do that in the past like simmons used to make multi-zone pads and then there's v drums but this is like the sensitivity of it and also the fact that it's just like you plop it on your snare drum and then suddenly you have like a whole new instrument. Right. I think that's pretty dang cool. Yeah. Um, and that, so that's something that excites you. That's something that you look at that and you're like, man, fucking let's, let's go there. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever do it because, right. uh, because I, I don't even know if I have the brain capacity to learn like how to operate that. But the people that I have seen make music out of it, I'm always like respect. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And I'm, I'm the exact same way. Like I, I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about it because on the one hand, like you, I'm just like mad respect. That's amazing. He's making music in just a completely new and different way on the drums. And the other part of me is like, I, I'm not interested in doing that. I'm just. <laughs> yeah. Well, and maybe this is our generation, our, our age talking here, but like for me, I'm always trying to get away from the computer as much as I possibly yeah, can, yeah. you know, like, um, because I get so easily distracted when I'm working that for years I didn't even want to use a doll. I just wanted to do everything on tape or on Porter studio. But, wow. um, but now, now that I'm doing it, I can treat it a little bit more like a tape. I'm like, Oh, I can see a way of working on this that like actually mimics the thing that I like, but it's going to be a lot faster and a lot less of a headache. Right. Um, so, right. uh, so that's, so that's the, um, compromise that I've come to at this point. But when, when I'm writing, when I'm writing a song, um, I generally like try to stay away from the computer as much as possible because again, I'm prone, I'm really prone to that kind of distraction. Yeah. And, um, totally. Yeah. So, so Yeah. But there's some people who can like sit with one of those triggers for like ten hours and make the most incredible like modular synth music. So. Right, right. Um, yeah. And it's I, I guess like uh, going back to what we were saying about you know your your process and what you're inclined to do and just your identity. Like something I've learned uh, in this room and and recording uh, myself is that I I would rather spend hours fucking around with drums and drum heads and mics. Than, than spend any time at all fucking around inside a DAW. 
<laughs> yeah, totally. Like I've learned, um, you know, I've learned some plugins and and the EQ and like it is important, but man, I I really try and do it all on the front end so that I have to spend as little time as possible staring at that screen. Absolutely, and uh, I mean, one really fun experiment is. Um, Al Schmidt, who was the uh, mix engineer for like a lot of the Steely Dan records, mm-hmm. like his whole thing is like he doesn't even he won't even use compression. Wow, he's like he's like I know what mics to use, yeah, and how to and where to and where to put them. And if you have a, if you have a great drummer, then you're not going to have any problems. Yeah, I'm just like that's a pretty radical concept, but I love that. Yeah. I mean, think, think about when you like put on old Sinatra records, like mm-hmm. those don't really have a, like a ton of EQ or compression. It's just like the way it sounded. Right. <laughs> right. And those things sound like they were recorded yesterday. I'm curious how you ended up in Nashville. You said it was 2018 that you moved there? Yes. So you're in Philly, yeah. you're touring with Dr. Dog, you're gigging your ass off. What what points you towards Nashville? Uh, well, we were actually living in Richmond, Virginia for a little while because my wife uh, collaborates with a lot of musicians there. And we we were loving Richmond, but we decided it was either like we could move back to Philly together and um, – you know, uh, try to sort of settle down or buy a house or something. And then Nashville just made more sense because of the work and, um, you know, staying, staying working and, uh, her folks live here. So, um, that's, that's why we chose it. Um, and she had lived, she had lived here, um, from 2006 to 2015. So she was already familiar with it and, it just seemed like the right thing to do right. for for work. Right. Um, when we when we first moved to town, we had a house that had like a detached shed with a, a space for my drums. But now this new spot came with a studio, so that was like that's amazing. I mean, that was huge. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy, and it, and it's soundproofed already, and it has you know the the glass panes and everything. Jesus. So it's it's it, it's. It's gonna be. It would be hard to give it up, right? Um, just because it's like it's just like wow. We really, all we really have had to do back here is decorate it, you right? Know? Right. The, the rest of it is moving ready. That's so Nashville. Did the house also come with so, a vintage clothing shop? <laughs> uh, maybe. <laughs> maybe we have, maybe we have to start one. Right. Right. So like. You're uh, a good example of, I think, the the kind of musician and the kind of drummer that has been talked about a lot uh, on this podcast and elsewhere. Just over the last five and five or ten years, you know how Nashville isn't just country anymore. Um, it's it's opening up to a wider uh, swath of music and musicians and and et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I'm curious about is how do you see like, do you do you see kind of a segregation between New Nashville and Old Nashville? You know, the the country world and the rest of what's going on in there. 
Um, do you see uh, cross pollination between those worlds? Do you do any of it? Mm. Um, because that's something mm-hmm. that I haven't been able to sort of get a read on when it comes to what's going on in Nashville and how it all interacts. Well, what I will say, uh, even from just what I know, is it seems like there's a real push to, yeah, I mean, diversify here mm-hmm. and, and make it more for for everyone and not make it just so country and so uh, and so white, honestly. Mm, so it's yeah. like there's been there's been, I think, a lot of positive change. Uh, it's still changing. It's still, you know, in its early state. You know, it's like I come from Philadelphia, so I'm I am used to all different kinds of people and music and, and art, you know, commingling. Whereas here, I didn't realize how much of a divide there was. Um, but, you know, I think, yeah, I just think there's a lot of good stuff happening right now and it's a, a much needed change and um, it's continuing to change. And I also think it's because there's a lot of people who aren't born here moving here. So there's people yeah. from LA and all, all over the place. It's like, I was talking about it with somebody the other day where it's like, this is really one of the last places where you can be a musician just by virtue of being a musician. It, you're, you're of value. Yeah. And, um, I think that that's a really positive thing because like that was not a lot. That, a lot of the times it's not my experience in other of the major industry towns. So, right. um, there is a real emphasis on people playing instruments here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's really rad. Uh, no matter no matter no matter how you slice it, uh, as far as the question that you asked, like, I, you know, I think that if the if the impetus is to diversify, then that cannot that can't be a bad thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that that's going to make the scene here better and um, less less awful for a lot of people. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'm do, all for it. Do you sense any like antipathy or rivalry between those two camps? Is, is there a sense that the, the country world is sort of, uh, viewing the, you know, the new Nashville residents as like carpetbaggers? Is there a sense on the part of the new Nashville residents that like, you know, the country world is just outdated and too white and like, mm. Well, I think that um, more more so than music, the there's bigger problems here <laughs> that have that that have to do that have to do with um, you know like uh, gigantic Amazon warehouses coming to town, right? And, you know, um, you know the sort of larger looming problems of gentrification. I think are are sort of the things that everyone's really terrified about the sort of tech, the impending tech boom that, that is, you know, we're all kind of looking at it and being like, please don't, please don't do that. You know, please, please. There's a lot of um, unfulfilled promises that that need to be fulfilled here before we even approach whatever that is. So um, I don't need, I don't necessarily think that there's a wedge or an, if if there is one, then that's completely on the old guards. You know that that's on them. You know if they're not willing to adapt and and you know be humane, right. <laughs> then then I think that they and if they want to stay in their lane because that's the way they like it, then that's on them. But yeah. I think you can't really stop uh, 
when something is so positive and there's so much support for it, you can't really stop that train. So right. I, I and and I didn't mean to like ascribe any of that antipathy to that uh, group of people, but just no, of. no, but, the, but I mean, there are definitely are, I mean, there, I mean, <laughs> you, you can look them up. <laughs> <laughs> They're talked about. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think, uh, country is going to continue to dominate Nashville for a long time and maybe in perpetuity. I, I think, um, I, I don't, I, you know, anybody who thinks that, um, something is going to overtake country in Nashville, I think is, is just paranoid and unrealistic, but there, there could be, and should be, I think room for, like you said, everyone else, like Nashville can be for everyone. And I think it's, it's on its, on its way to being that. I hope so. I really hope so. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's becoming like the uh, the Austin, you know, where it's the rest of the state might be a, a, a problem, yeah. but <laughs> th- th- this can this can be a, a safe haven for people who are trying to just be themselves. And I, yeah, I can only hope that I can only hope that that's what's um, happening here. Yeah. But you know, it's it's also contingent upon a lot of other things. But the 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 quality and um, character of all, all the musicians i know here are you know the vast majority of them are awesome people yeah. and um trying to trying to make a difference so yeah i can I, love it. I can say the same about pretty much everyone i've i've met and played with there um and like you yes. said it's it's a town that really values people playing instruments um and in terms of an industry town like uh you know you you think of the big three music towns as nashville new york and la and out of the three of those, Nashville is the the only one that's just pure music, right? Because yes. New York is New York is an arts town, right? In yes. like just in general, the arts. Yes. Like it it yes. lives in New York. LA is an entertainment town. Um yes. but yes. but Nashville, it was built on music. Like <laughs> there's a reason it's called it, Music it, City. Exactly. So I just don't want anybody to lose sight of that. But I, th- I do think that um, that's that's its biggest asset right now is that, um, you know, a lot of the musicians that I know who moved here are continuing to to work and do things that they're really happy doing. So, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. The, the um, amount of live music there just blows my mind. I mean, you, you would expect it oh, yeah. to be that being Music City, but like, I don't, I don't know if on a given night there are more musicians working anywhere in the world. <laughs> there are just Seriously. so many stages Seriously. in Nashville. So many stages. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, like I, I've played a lot of shows in, in Nashville, um, more you know even when i briefly lived in richmond it was a great town but like the gigs were kind of few and far between whereas here it's like i you know if i wanted to play in a couple weeks i could book a show or you know what i mean like people are are good good about responding yeah and as much as uh you know nashville is is just uh, one of the capitals of recorded music um obviously the session thing is just huge it, the live music there is has always yeah. been uh, just yeah. absolutely off the chain every night. Tons yeah. and tons of yeah. places. Um, it yes. actually reminds me of um, – well, I, I am reminded of Kansas City where I lived for seven years. And, and when I lived there, oh, nice. I, I was in the jazz world. Um, yes. And 
Kansas City is just like accustomed to seeing live jazz everywhere. Like live jazz yeah. is just sort of you know woven. The green. Into, what's that? The, the the green. Uh, what's that venue? Uh, uh, or oh, hold on. Are you talking about the green the green room in Memphis? No. Hold on. I gotta look. Oh wait, it's gonna kill me. Green Lady Lounge. Yeah, Green Lady Lounge. Yeah, yeah. That's a great, yes. great spot. But the, the, way, yes. the way live jazz is sort of like woven into the fabric of Kansas City, I, I feel like live music in general is just woven into the fabric of Nashville. Absolutely, yeah. Um, man, that's awesome. You lived in Kansas City. Uh, Katie, who I play with in Waxahachie, that's where she's, that's where she's at. Oh, nice. She's in Kansas City. Um, and yeah, the whole story of like how all those jazz musicians would take the train down through Kansas City and like the, the lineage. Right. It's, it's rad. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was an amazing. I went to grad school there and then spent a few years uh-huh. after that. Oh, so speaking of, <laughs> speaking of grad school, uh, real quick, tell me about your jazz damage. What's your jazz school damage? Oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess for me, um, I really should have thought through what I was going to do after high school because I knew I wanted to play music, but I just assumed, and I think a lot of drummers assume this, that it's like when you get to college, you should go to arts, an art school for a jazz performance major. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe it's different now, but when I went, I you know I had a couple of older teachers who were just very set in the way of like, you're going to learn post-bop. And I'd be like, well, what if I want to learn, you know, uh, Devo, a sun, yeah, or a sun, a sun rock tune, or what if I want to, what if I want to bring a, a, you know, something to the class that might be a little bit off the beaten path, and they'd be like, no, you have to learn like Philly Joe Jones solos, note for note. Um, and I think I just felt, I immediately felt really stifled by it, mm-hmm. um, and I kind of got it out before, before. Um, it got bad, but, uh, you know, I think like if you love any genre of music and you are passionate about it and you sit and practice, you know, however long every day, three to four hours a day, transcribing old tunes, because that's what you love to do. Mm -hmm. That's very different than going to school to learn how to play bop, which, which like is a style of music that emerged from, people playing in clubs and playing together. Right. And so I thought, I thought it was kind of wild. And I also have the same kind of baggage about playing like classic rock Mm -hmm. where I'm like, I, I, you know, there's, there is a a methodical approach to learning that stuff, but like the best way to do it is to play along with records. And you also have to love it. And I, didn't really initially love playing like standards. Mm-hmm. Now, now and nowadays, I have like a completely different appreciation for it. But at the time, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to like play any standard. Right. You know. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, well, like, well, I look back on it and I'm like, why was I doing that? Because my other, because my interests much were much more in the composition zone. Mm-hmm. I wanted to like. I should I should have taken a year off and gone back to school for like film scoring or something that like really I'm excited about. Yeah. But at the time, like at the time, I was just doing what I thought was 
you know what you're supposed to do the societal expectation for a drummer yeah you know oh you got you go get your jazz degree and then you become steve gadd right like, that's not right and for like, me it's like people go ahead yeah. well it's like people forget steve gadd like learned a lot of that a lot of that stuff by like playing in an army band yeah or like and elvin jones too like elvin jones like he was in i think he was in an army he was he was on a boat playing drums and like that's where he like found his voice right right <laughs> did he did he go to a jazz program somewhere no he like learned about it from life experience and yeah so i think that that was st- starting to um give me some cognitive dissonance feel like yeah and it took me it took me even longer to sort of resolve that cognitive dissonance because i like before i got a jazz degree in grad school i went to like classical <laughs> i got a classical degree yeah. in undergrad um when you know all like all i was doing in high school was playing drums i was playing drum set i was in marching band and then i you know i, I this path just got sort of put in front of me like you said by just the conventional um uh, academic uh you know path that uh talented kids are told to follow it's like so i you know i started playing the marimba i went into a classical program in college and then yeah i would you know so it wasn't until grad school that i um you know resolved the cognitive dissonance of like i don't want to do the percussion thing anymore i just want to play jazz drums and then it wasn't until after i was out of grad school that i resolved the cognitive dissonance of like i don't just want to play jazz drums i want to do a lot of other shit and yeah, maybe a lot totally. less jazz drums. <laughs> well, and, and you know, I should um, double back for a second because it's not just about jazz. It's because obviously jazz is incredible. It's it's the bedrock of all the music that I love. Right. But what I'm saying is any any educational program that is preventing you from exploring mm. is not one worth pursuing. Mm. So like. Had they been like, yeah, you want to do a sunrock? Do you want to start a sunrock project at the school? I'd be like, hell yes. Yeah, you know what I mean? Because that, because not only would that be something that I'd be interested in, but it's also like an artist from who lived in Philadelphia for a very long time, who's like a- absolutely crucial to the history of Philadelphia music. So you know what I mean? It's like it's yeah. not about it's not just about the the genre. It's about saying, well, you can't do that because. It, that's not that doesn't fall into our idea of what it is, right? And I and I think that that's a huge problem with just schooling in general. It's I like do the same too. reason I don't like. It's the same reason I don't like standardized testing. Mm-hmm. It's like how can you give a kid in Texas a standardized test where it's like Jimmy walked through a blizzard, and the kids <laughs> in Texas are like, I've never had experienced a blizzard. I've never maybe I've never seen a blizzard before, or whatever it is. Like these are the kinds of things that I just have a, a natural like well, why would you do that? You know, you should make things individualized because going back to what we first said, everybody's individual. So yeah. we should be celebrating, we should be celebrating that individuality. Um, so, so that's, that, that was the damage or rather the, the thing that I saw as prohibitive. And um, I think like going on tour immediately kicked my butt because I dropped out of jazz school and my parents gave me an ultimatum. Like you have a year to, to make something happen or else you have to go back to school. Wow. 
And then I joined a Frank Zappa cover band, and the rest is history. And I've been on, <laughs> been on tour eating, eating garbage ever since. Uh, <laughs> Look, Mom and Dad, I did it. <laughs> hey, I, guys, I made my 18-year-old dream come true. I'm uh, having an energy drink yeah. before my show. <laughs> yeah, chili cheese Fritos on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's yeah. beautiful. A lot of times when people ask me, you know, how do you get work? <laughs> you know, I feel like every time I've like been called to do some kind of lesson, they're like, kids are like, so how are you like getting gigs? <laughs> and um, I sometimes I'll even, it depends on what how spicy I'm feeling. But, um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but what I'll usually say is that like 85% of it is um, being, showing up and being a, being a good person mm-hmm. uh, or, or at the very least being a fun hang. Right. And um, uh, I think that like there are so many drummers in the world who are incredible, can play circles around me, can play circles around my friends. But like if, if they're, um, you know, not uh, listening or not cognizant of other people's space, it becomes harder and harder to keep, those opportunities um and i've seen it happen to some really talented people so yeah. the advice the advice i would give any young drummer or anybody who's like how do i get gigs is like work on your personality and work on um you know being a good support system for everybody around you because ultimately drummers uh commonly fall into the role of mediator yeah um, you know by I think that's kind of baked into the job description where like you're literally setting the tone yeah. for what is going to happen. If you're, you know, if I go up there with one China symbol, two kick drums and a bell brass snare drum, that will set the tone <laughs> for what the gig, for what the gig is going to be. Right. Um, uh, so remember that you're setting the tone, not, not just on stage, but off stage. Totally. And yeah, your personality sets the tone for the gig. Yeah. And I think if you, like you said, if you work on your personality, you sort of get to know yourself, you become secure in yourself and, and you're, uh, you know, uh, vigilant that who you truly are is somebody who's nice to be around, then yeah. the opportunities that come to you will value you for, uh, not just how you play, but who you are. Um, yeah. and I think a lot of, a lot of the guys that you were talking about who get some big opportunities and then it doesn't go well because of their personality, like, you know, yeah. their, how, how they play is valued, but how they are, who they are is not necessarily <laughs> on par. And it, and it gets, it gets around. And I think that I'm not saying that I'm like the ideal. I'm, <laughs> what I'm saying is that like, there's, t- there's times when I'm cranky and insufferable too, but like you do have to continue to work on these things if you want to keep working. Yeah. Um, Cause otherwise the people are going to be like, ah, you know, I hired him for one game, but I don't know. I, he was pretty cranky. He didn't yeah. have, he didn't have his, tra- didn't have his trail mix <laughs> or whatever it is. Do you know, do you know Jordan Pearlson? I do. Yeah, I interviewed him recently. We, we, we shared a, we shared a gig. Oh, really? Because he, he played with Adrian Ballou. Uh huh. And that's where I got my start. Oh, cool. Uh, my sister my sister still plays with him. Right on. So yes, I do know 
I know Jordan. He's great. We were talking about like this, just sort of your personality and, and, you know, being aware of the parts of it that, you know, aren't attractive. And, and he talked about how he can, like his East coast comes out sometimes where he's, you know, if, if a situation is bad, he'll just be like, fuck this, you know? And, but he, he learned that in Nashville, it can be an asset sometimes because a lot of people in Nashville, like Southerners are too patient, too polite. Yes. And he can he can sort of step in yeah. with his East Coast and be like, nope, here's how it's going. Yes. Um, yes. I, I, I think that might be one of my assets, too, where, like, I bring sort of that harder, maybe a little bit of a harder edge when yeah. it comes to – even when it comes to playing, too, like – because there's so many guys here who can do that brush – the brushwork and it's like so airy and beautiful and right. like, it sounds like they just sounds like they've been doing it forever and I'm just like hell yeah but like I go up there and I'm just like meh <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Philly <laughs> I'll, I'll cut you no yeah. I won't cut anybody. Oh, I love it. Uh, well, man, it's it's yeah. great to see what you're doing. I can't wait to hear what comes out of this new studio of yours. Oh, awesome, man! Thank um, you, and uh, I will be I will be up in Nashville uh, numerous times over the next few months. So I hope we can get in the same room together somewhere. Oh yeah, we'll have lots of laughs for sure. Beautiful, great talking with you, man. Thanks for doing it. Oh, dude, thank you so much. It was a blast. So there you go, Zach's conversation with drummer Eric Slick. Uh, we want to thank Eric for his time. Next week, I will be talking with Jerry Pentecost, formerly the drummer with Amanda Shires. He's now the drummer for Old Crow Medicine Show. Uh, We talk about what it's like growing up here in Nashville and working in the country music scene and working with a band like Old Crow that has never had a quote-unquote drummer in the band before. So stay tuned for that next week. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and hope to see you around. Bye-bye. Thank you.